Good morning, church. My name is Caleb. I'm the student minister here at City Church. I'm so excited that I get to be here with you. You might not be as excited, and that's okay. I understand. Uh, you know, B team over here, you know, I get it. It's all good. Uh, but today, we're going to look at the road to Emmaus, and uh, I'm going to ask you a question, and I'd love to hear your answer after the service. But if you could go and live and experience just one story of the Bible, like you would get to be there and see it, what story would you choose? Maybe you would want to see David kill Goliath, or maybe you'd want to see the, wall, the walls of Jericho fall down. Maybe you'd want to see Paul's conversion, Saul to Paul on the, on the road to Damascus. Well, the one story that I think I would choose is the story we're going to talk about today. It's the road to Emmaus, and uh, it's really, really, I mean, the more I've just been studying it this week, it's, I love this story. It is so cool, and, I, and I'll tell you why, not right now, but later. Let me give some context to the book of Luke. So Luke, Luke wrote two books. He wrote the book of Luke, the, and Acts. And so they're part one and part two. And the whole point of Luke's gospel, the argument he's making is that Jesus is the risen Messiah, and he's specifically trying to prove this through eyewitness accounts. And so over and over again, Luke is trying to show these people saw this, and these people saw this, and these people saw this. And the road to, the Emmaus, the road to Emmaus are the very first people who see the risen Messiah. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Luke 24, and we're going to read 13 to 21 for now, and then we'll read as we keep going. It says, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they, st- and they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know these things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word, before God and all people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. This story is painfully ironic. What happens here? These two disciples, they're walking to Emmaus, seven miles east of Jerusalem. And as they're walking, Jesus comes up. They don't know it's Jesus, though, right? The text says uh, that they didn't recognize that it was him. And uh, they're walking, and Jesus comes and stops them, and they respond kind of impatiently. So when they say, right, because in English, when we read this, we could read this in a bunch of different tones. Um, are, you the only, like, are you really the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know about what's happened? Like, there could be, like, a mocking tone behind it, or it could be, like, a genuine concern. Have you lost your mind? Like, well, it could be a bunch of different tones. In the original language, when we look at the Greek, it kind of, the syntax solves that whole problem for us. And what they're doing right here is they're actually, they're actually insulting Jesus. Like, they're actually kind of like, uh, seriously, bro? Like, you really don't know what's happening here? Like, it's a direct insult to Jesus. And 
I don't know about you, but uh, I mean, imagine being Cleopas. The only thing that's known about you in the entire Bible is that you were the first person to insult Jesus after he's risen from the dead. <laughs> I mean, that is a rough, that is rough. Yikes. Uh, but this story's ironic, right? Because you have these two living disciples that are talking about a dead Jesus, when in reality, it's the story of a living Jesus talking to two spiritually dead disciples. Uh, that's the reality of what's happening here. Now, uh, I want to clarify something. I'm going to call them disciples, and they're not like the original 12 disciples. We don't know who, who Cleopas and this other guy really were exactly. I'm calling them disciples because they end up following Jesus, okay? So we're going to call them disciples just so I don't say the two unnamed strangers. That just is kind of clunky. So we're going to call them disciples, but they're not the 12. Okay. So Jesus responds, and he's kind of, he plays dumb a little bit and goes, what, what things are you talking about? And how they respond, it really tells us a lot about the state of their faith. Because frankly, they confess that they were disappointed in Jesus' death. It says, we trusted he would redeem Israel. We had hoped he would be the one. And it's clear that they didn't think Jesus did what he was supposed to do. And my first point here is that they are weak in hope. They expected God to move in a certain way. And that way was that the Messiah would come and would overthrow Rome. Rome has conquered Israel, is reigning over them. And they said, the Messiah who's gonna come is gonna overthrow Rome. We're gonna be our own country again. This is gonna be awesome. But they didn't know that the enemies that Jesus came to defeat were not Rome. It was the spiritual enemies. It was our sin and Satan. That's who he came to to conquer. And they didn't, never in their wildest dreams could have imagined that that would happen through death and suffering. And I think sometimes we can be this way, that we expect God to move a certain way and when he doesn't move the way we want, we become weak in our hope. But we have to remember our God is so much bigger than us. And if he can save the world through death, then he can save whatever it is you're going through, probably in a different way than you imagine it going. They were weak in their hope. And if that's you this morning, this message isn't to condemn you. I'm here to encourage you. This text is here to encourage us that there is a different way. And that's what we're going to look at. Let's keep reading. We're going to read... Verse 24, chapter 24, 22 to 24. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. So these disciples who still don't believe that the Messiah has risen, who still believe Jesus is dead, who still believe that God has disappointed them and that he is not the Messiah. He was just a prophet, just like Moses and Elijah and all the other ones. They have also heard the eyewitness accounts that say the tomb is empty and they still don't believe. Ladies, isn't this typical? I mean, come on. You tell men the truth. And they just don't listen. Just, just par for the course, you know. Typical men being dumb. But, 
They didn't believe. And so not only are they weak in their hope, but they're also cold to the truth. And so that's the state of these two disciples, is they're weak in hope and cold to truth. Have you been there? I know I have. Whether it's from sin, struggles, disappointments, trauma, hurts, unmet expectations, unfulfilled dreams, whatever it is, I imagine everyone in the room, we've been there. And the reason that the disciples ended up there was because they had a perspective that if God didn't move this specific way, then there's no hope. And that's just frankly not true. God often moves in ways different than we want him to, doesn't he? But here's what's, what I love about this story is that God in his grace and his compassion and his goodness, he doesn't leave the disciples there. Even after they've insulted Jesus, and they've mocked him and been sarcastic towards him. He's got every right to just go. But he doesn't. Look what happens in verses 25 to 27. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe, all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. This first part, sorry, I'm gonna talk about the Greek again. I've literally taken eight classes on this and I only get to use it for these like 30 seconds. So uh, we're, gonna, we're gonna use it. I paid a lot of money to use it for those 30 seconds, all right? I'm still paying a lot of money for them. And so we're gonna use them, okay? Uh, in English, we think of this word foolish and we would translate that more like, hey, morons, that's not the truth. That's not how Jesus, that's not the tone of Jesus. That's not what that word means. What Jesus is saying here when he's calling, when he's saying, oh, foolish ones, it's about a lack of understanding. It's saying, hey, you don't understand. You're not getting it. And when he calls them slow of heart, what he's saying is in Greek, right? The Greek understanding of how the body worked was the heart was where your decisions were made. You made your decisions in your heart. Like that was the, we know now, we do that in our brains. The Greeks believe that was in your heart. And so when Jesus is calling them slow of heart, he is saying, and you're slow to act. You are slow to make decisions. They're waiting in this limbo of doubting truth and not having hope. And what does Jesus do? He does one of the coolest thing ever. He points them to God's word. Uh, this is the reason why I would choose this passage if I could be in any one story in the Bible, it's this one right here, is because it says he went through the law of Moses and all the prophets, and he showed how he's the fulfillment of all of it. Your Old Testament's got 39 books. Could you imagine sitting down with Jesus and him going book by vert, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse saying, yeah, I'm fulfilled right here. Oh, I'm also mentioned here and there and there and there. Man, I bet we'd love our Old Testaments a lot more if we knew all that, right? Jesus didn't have the New Testament. He didn't need the New Testament because the whole Old Testament is about him too. The whole Bible is a story of God and humanity, how God rescued humanity through Jesus. Genesis to Revelation. That's why I would choose that story. I imagine that's one of the most mind-blowing sermons in the whole world. And um, it, it brings a lot, it makes me humble when I think about that this is probably one of the greatest sermons and he did it on a dirt road for two people. I'm also a little annoyed they didn't give more detail about the sermon, but that's, <laughs> it's, it could have made for a better sermon here, but, you know. Uh. 
I think we, Jesus is a genius. Uh, I believe that 100%. When he pointed them to God's word, he met both of their needs. They lacked hope. So he shows them how Jesus is our hope. He points to how the whole, the whole Old Testament pointed to himself. They were cold to truth. So he puts the Bible right in front of their noses, the ultimate truth, the place where we go to truth. He brings it before them. He meets both of their needs. They lacked hope, he shows them the Bible. They lacked truth, so they bring him to God's word. Do you lack hope? Are you cold to truth? I think a lot of times when we think about hope, we think about we cross our fingers and we just hope things go our way. And that it'll just end up right, or you'll just get that bonus, or you'll just whatever. That's not the biblical idea of hope. The biblical idea of hope isn't like, man, maybe we'll get lucky and be right. <laughs> man, that would be rough. That, that is not it at all. Here is hope. It's Revelation 21, 3 to 5. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. This is a promise from God's word to you. Your, our hope is in the fact that Jesus is coming again. And every hurt we've experienced, every, every sin that you've had, it will all be forgiven and every hurt will be redeemed one day in heaven for all eternity. That is what our hope is in. Some of those hurts you might experience on this side of heaven, but those are not promised to you. But praise God that it is promised to you that one day it will all be redeemed. Every dark corner of your life, every part of you that you think makes you unlovable, It'll all be brought to light in the light of Jesus and you will be fully known and you will be fully loved. That is our hope. Jesus talks about how the whole Old Testament is pointing to him and he didn't give us any specifics, but I wanna give you just a couple. Um, in the Old Testament, they made sacrifices to atone for their sin. We just looked at this in Hebrews in our last series. Jesus comes and is the ultimate sacrifice. We don't have to kill our dogs and our cats or any of that anymore because we have a Jesus who died once and for all for all of our sin. Israel, they longed for a king. They wanted a king so badly. Every other nation had a king. They wanted a king too. And God says, you don't want a king. They're gonna take your money. They're gonna take your land. They're gonna take your sons. You don't want this and they didn't listen. And so they had a king, and they had Saul, who was terrible. They had David, who was good, not great. They had Solomon, also terrible. They have a nation that divides into. They have 30-something other kings. They all, guess what, are terrible, right? But then what happens? Jesus comes, and this king isn't on a throne. He's born in a manger. And we have a king who redeems all these terrible kings and is a righteous, perfect king. We have prophets in the whole Old Testament, like Obadiah. When's the last time you looked at that book? Jesus is in that too. I'm telling. And all of those books are prophesying about Jesus who will come. In the, in the Old Testament, there is, there's, a, there's a scapegoat. What they would do is they put all the sins of the people on this goat. They would send it out into the, wood, into the wilderness until it died. That's what they would do with the scapegoat. Jesus became our scapegoat. 
There's a story of these fiery serpents who would bite the Israelites, and they, when they were bit, they would die. But they were brought to life when there was a wooden cross, and God told them to wrap a snake around the cross, and they did, and they would look to a cross, and they were brought back to life. That is Jesus. I'm sure there's a lot more. Maybe the earliest one is Genesis 3. After man has sinned and death and brokenness has entered the world, what does God do? He gives us the gospel right there because he's just that good. And he says, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. The seed of that woman, it's not you, it's not your kids, it is Jesus. Jesus is the seed who came and he crushed Satan once and for all. And from Genesis 3, from Genesis to Revelation, it is all about him. The entire Bible finds its fulfillment in a Messiah who suffers. So how do we get, in, in the 8 a.m., I said, how do we get uncold from the truth? Uh, which I didn't realize, that's not an adjective. I made that up. And then, but, 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 then I talk about this. How do we defrost from doubt? Oh, come on, come on. How do we defrost from doubt? We have to fight to be in God's word. You have to fight to be in God's word. This is why we do fight clubs here. If you don't know what they are, our elders are gonna be up at the front afterwards and they'd love to tell you about them. But they're just when three or four believers gather together and they open up God's word. Fight to be in God's word. Get in a fight club and fight together to be in God's word. After this mind-blowing sermon, the disciples still don't know it's Jesus. They, but they do know this. We don't want to be away from this guy. Look what happens in verses 28 to 31. It says, So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. That is awesome. I don't even need to say anything, I don't think. But I'm going to. <laughs> Isn't it, I, I find it really fascinating that where, where Jesus is invited as a guest, he ends up becoming the host. The disciples weren't the ones who broke the bread. Jesus comes in, was invited as a guest, and ends up becoming the host, and breaks the bread, and it's spread around. Now, you can probably guess what I'm going to say next. In the Greek here, <laughs> it's really cool, it's, it's, it's important. In verse 31 it says, and their eyes were opened. This verb is what's called in the divine passive. What that means it wasn't that like they just didn't recognize Jesus got a new haircut uh, and oh, well, look, that is Jesus after all. No, it was God revealed it to them. In verse 13, it said that they didn't recognize him. That was also a divine passive verb. And this one's a divine. What's this saying is that God reveals himself to them. That it was God who opened their eyes to see that it was Jesus. Our God is a God of revelation. And I think this is an important part of our salvation that we need to understand that we don't talk about is that we were never good enough to find God. It's not that you were holy and then God said, oh yeah, that's one of mine, I'm okay. No, 
That's not it at all. Ephesians says we are dead in our trespasses. Not partially dead, not still squirming. We were dead, dead, deader than the squirrel you ran over this morning on the way to church, dead. You were dead, dead in your sin. And God is the one who in his goodness regenerated your heart so that you could see the gospel, believe in it, and come to know him. God is the one who saved you. It was never you that saved you. God is the one who saves us. And here's proof that it's not about being good enough. Think about these disciples. They're weak in hope. They're cold to truth. They've insulted the risen Messiah, and God still reveals himself to them. If that doesn't say we've got a good and gracious God, I don't know what does. There's this really awesome dead preacher. His name's Alex McLaren, and he says this. The humble table where Christ is invited to sit becomes a sacred place of revelation. The humble table where Christ is invited to sit becomes a sacred place of revelation. And when this happens, man, some really awesome things happen. Let's look at verse 32. It says, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Here's what I love from this verse. It's talking about their hearts burning, and we're not talking about heartburn, people, all right? This isn't about heartburn. That does stink, but this is talking about how their hearts are burning. They went from having no hope to burning with hope. They were filled with hope, no longer lacking in it. Why? Because God had revealed himself to them. Are you, are you weak in hope? Are you wanting to be burning with hope? Maybe we need to do what these disciples did. Invite Jesus to the table. Maybe we need to open up God's word like Jesus did and cling to God's promises, memorizing passages like Revelation 21, three to five, that there will be no more tears. What a better verse to memorize than our future. These unnamed disciples, they saw Jesus finally. Their eyes were opened by God. God revealed himself to them. They recognized it's Jesus. Their hearts are lit aflame. Their hope is restored. God has moved in a way that they could have never imagined that hope and new life would come through death and suffering. Who would have thought? But it does. And now they are filled with hope. And with this hope, once they've seen Jesus and they're savoring on Jesus, they don't stay there because, look what they do next. Let's wrap up with these last couple of verses. Verses 33 to 35. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told them what had happened on that road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Don't miss this. They walk seven miles, they get to Emmaus. They eat dinner, and now in darkness, they hike seven miles back. When's the last time you walked 14 miles? Golly, come on. But they do this because this message is worth it. They do it because now instead of doubting truth, they're out there proclaiming truth. Isn't that awesome? Man, in the darkness of the night, they walk back to Jerusalem. I imagine there are robbers littered on these highways at night. We know that, actually. That's not even imagining. And they're not concerned about safety. They're not concerned about sleep. They're concerned about going and spreading the gospel that Christ is risen and he is king. Instead of doubting truth, they proclaim truth. But church, I also want to say that there's nothing wrong with having doubts. But it's what do we do with those doubts? What is wrong is when we just sit in them 
and we become directionless and we don't seek truth. Elizabeth Elliot, she's this incredible woman. She said, faith does not eliminate questions, but faith knows where to take them. That when you are doubting truth or when you're even cold to the truth, what do you do? Well, you go to truth and you go to the God of truth. And you go to him. And once our hearts are burning with hope, it should lead us to have hearts that are burdened for the people who don't have it. That our hearts will be burdened over our neighbors and our coworkers who don't know the God that we love, who haven't experienced true unconditional love, who haven't experienced forgiveness, who aren't free from their guilt and their shame. Our hearts should burden for them. It, it did for these two disciples. They went and shared the gospel. Charles Spurgeon, he's this another awesome dead guy. He said, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Um, that, cuts, that cuts to me. I, that, that hurts. Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. This doesn't mean you have to go to Africa. This doesn't mean you have to go to Cambodia. We say here all the time at, at City Church that like God has placed you where he's placed you for a reason, in your neighborhood, on your street corner. Where you are at is your mission field. Melissa is our mission field. I'm in Allen, so I guess Allen in my apartment complex is my mission field, in addition to Melissa. Don't just savor Jesus. We have to share him. We need to share him. Do you have coworkers, neighbors? Do, they, do you even know where they're at in their faith? Maybe a conversation this week would be a great place to start. Doesn't have to start with the opening of the Bible and showing them how Jesus fulfills the whole Old Testament. You probably don't have to start there. But talking to them is a great starting point. As the band comes up here, um, I want to challenge you. Parents, you are the primary disciple makers. One of the people you need to share the gospel with the most is your kids. Jessica will preach the gospel to them every single Sunday. I'll, I'll preach the gospel to them every single Wednesday. And you bring them here on Sunday? Ryan will preach the gospel every single Sunday. But who they need to hear the gospel the most from is you. You are the one called by God to disciple them. Church, this road to Emmaus, this is our story too. Were we too not once weak in hope and cold to truth, but God being rich in mercy through Jesus, we can have hearts that are burning with hope. And we can have a tongue that proclaims the truth with all joy and all confidence. Church, we're going to stand and sing, run to the Father. You want, you want to proclaim truth and you want to be burning with hope? Well, let's run to the Father then. Let's stand and let's sing. Thanks for joining us for the preaching of God's Word at City Church Melissa. We meet Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m., and we look forward to meeting you there soon. City Church Melissa, for the glory of God, the good of the city, and the hope of the world. Oh, oh.